0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to On The Back Bar, and today's guest needs no introduction. The maestro himself joins us today to reminisce on a career of absolute outstanding achievements. Salvatore Calabrese is an industry icon who has pretty much done everything possible in the bartending world. He's served presidents and famous singers. He's got a Guinness World Record for the oldest and most expensive cocktail, He's written a number of award-winning books, and he even has his own set of bar Salvatore, it was an absolute pleasure to host him on the show and to talk about his long tenor in the industry and some of the incredible stories he has. So I think you're gonna love this one. Um, guys, if you've not done it yet, go check out my website gastronomelifestyle.com because you'll find a lot of my content, uh, which includes the cocktail recipes I get from all my guests, Uh, a few articles in terms of like how to make syrups, shrubs, everything like that and another exciting piece of news I have is I've just taken over a bar in Bangkok and I'm going to be developing an amazing cocktail menu which I'm probably going to document. So if you want to see that whole process you can head over to Instagram on the back bar, Facebook Lifestyle, and obviously the website gastronomalifestyle.com. I think you'll find some really valuable information there. Um, Guys, pretty much it from me. I want to wrap up so you can really jump into Salvatore's life, Uh, but I'd really ask you politely to subscribe, follow, uh, check us out on Patreon, join the community, because any little helps, and it's really good to have you guys support me, and yeah, even if it's just a comment. I should also let you all know that this episode will also be on YouTube so you can view me and Salvatore talking over our Zoom call and I'll probably be doing this a lot more in the future so the YouTube channel will be building up a lot more. Uh, You can go check it out for Gastronomer Lifestyle and uh, you know with all the stuff I mentioned it'll all be in the show links which you can see below. Well that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Enjoy Salvatore and I will speak to you at the end. Ciao ciao. Let's roll the intro.
1: Benjamin Franklin once said, In wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, and in water there's bacteria. No bacteria here. This is On the Back Bar, hosted by Christopher Manning, an industry expert, author, and bartender who's been in the industry for over a decade. On the Back Bar is your gateway to talking to the people behind the scenes at bars, distilleries, and vineyards around the world. We'll talk to the experts in the industry about future trends, people, spirits, cocktails, wine, and everything else. So kick your feet up, pour your favorite drink, and hang out on the Back Bar. This is Christopher Menning.
0: Alright, ladies and gentlemen, we are so fortunate and lucky to have the Maestro himself on the back bar with us. Salvatore, how are you? Very well, thank you. Sorry, typical of me, you know, me (laughs) and technical... We had a few technical issues, but we're back now. So (laughs) we're all good. And um, obviously we're all following the news. How's it going in the UK? Are you guys coping? You doing all right?
2: Uh, I mean, I've been to four different type of uh, financial crash. And 2008 was, I thought it was quite bad. Um, So much so they closed my venue, one of my iconic venues, Avatura 50, 50 St. James. Mm. But this is a, it's a totally a different beast. Uh, It's going to be absolutely, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. Uh, I, as a bar owner, bar operator, uh, it is worry time, but not just for me, for my staff, my team, you know, and um, uh, it doesn't matter what you do, when you open the door, you open up with not full capacity, with just with a 30% of capacity of your own venue, Mm. and uh, the rent could be the same. The landlord, at the moment, they don't play a game, you know, they still want their money. Uh, So it's going to be a very, very difficult time, and I don't think it's going to be short. I think this can last easily till next year. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. My venue at the Donovan Bar of Browns, you know, we're already thinking about to open the hotel in September, it's not going to open up in, in June, July, August, because there is no reservation and therefore you all encounter cost mm-hmm. and, um, and obviously you try to seduce some of the cost, you know,
0: Is there enough support from the government or from any of the big players? The government
2: gives support, but I don't think they understand hospitality.
0: Yes. You know, it's
2: all very well to say oh, they pay. I mean, at the moment, they pay 80 percent of the wages to my staff, which is good, right? Still with the farm, uh, at least that is a, is a positive thing. But that you still have to pay the rent, you know, you still yeah. have encountered cost, you know. It's um, it just let's it's go tough. to more positive eyes. exactly yeah, yeah. We'll,
0: we'll stay away from the doom and gloom well I mean I'm sure that everyone listening knows who you are and uh, we could spend hours talking about your long career history but could you give us a crash course of, uh, of your career and sort of your oh my begins? god
2: <laughs> ok uh, just in case for someone some of you do not know who I am my name is Salvatore Calabrese H the Maestro a name that is being given to me by the industry, and uh, which I'm very pleased for that, maybe because now I look like more like a maestro with a white bearder. Par- <laughs> by the way, this is a quarantine what it does to you, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, not going to the shop, not having blade to shave, right. Um, I started this industry in 1966, at the humble age of 11. Um when I started this industry, um, obviously it was during the summer school holiday. And uh, I, I was a bit of a wild boy, even at the age of 11. And I used to like to play football in the street with bare feet, uh, go into fight between different... Uh, Straight, you know, the <laughs> typical thing that you do when you grow up, especially on those days, there was much more freedom as a child that you have today. So, you know, you open the door and you go in the street. You know, my dad, uh, he decided, God bless his soul, that uh, he should try to figure out a way how to keep me on order. So, what he did, he found me a job in this hotel bar, uh, Hotel Regina Maiori on Amalfi Coast, to help out. And this was not unusual. Uh, Remember, in those days, uh, to see a child to help out in a coffee shop, or a bar, or a restaurant, or whatever it was, it it was quite common. And my day used to to start around six o'clock in the morning. I used to go to the hotel restaurant and there where I used to slice bread uh, for, for breakfast. And every stride had to be the same, otherwise the method D or the waiter would have told me off. And there where I learned how to be uh, particular and precise in anything I did. My second duty was to go down to the small, charming little bar uh, where it used to be hosted by this incredible persona. Signor Raffaello, who was a true a true master, a true a pro. He traveled the world, and um, and obviously after the Second World War, he decided to go in America. Different players, part of the world, and he, he learned his trade and his skill, and uh, but he decided to go back home, and uh, he could speak several languages, He could be missed the personality in a way. It was a, uh, how do I describe it? You remember the film Casablanca? Have you ever seen the film Casablanca? I have, yes. Okay. You know Humphrey Bogart, that he used to wear this impeccable cream jacket? Yes. Right? And uh, he used to be able to make the dream come reality to any, each one of his guests. Signor Fello was that kind of person. He could speak several languages, as I say. He could make sure that everyone who used to come into the bar used to feel special. And he also told me one of the most important lessons that I, today I still carry. All right. And maybe I will tell you that story. Um, actually, I, hold on a minute. I, I think I got the picture of Signor Raffaello. Oh, wow. Uh, okay.
0: <laughs> so he was one of your yeah. first mentors. In the
2: industry, it was a well, it kind of an, It wasn't. A, I wish I never call people, not even me. I'm not a mentor to anybody. Uh, I think you know we can learn and we can learn from others and pick up the best from others, right? We can certainly impress somebody, but mentor is somebody that is say, uh, you know untouchable, somebody that is about anyone. And uh, I don't think I am like that. I think, you know, what is important is uh, love what you do. And if you do with love and care, uh, you certainly inspire people, right? I understand.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, uh, always believe that uh, uh, my guys, they should be who they are for what they are, because they can only make us good. As much as they want to make us good, you know, so they can pick up anything that they have learned from me and make it better, mm-hmm. and, um, and they can carry that, they can carry maybe a little bit of me, you know. But mentor is somebody that you just go into church and pray, and <laughs> uh, you know, and preacher, sure, and uh, <laughs> it's almost to be a god, and uh, not gonna ask it.
0: I don't know if you can see the picture. This is Senor Rafael. Wow! Yeah, it's uh, it's very James Bond, isn't it? The early sort of era. Fantastic. Well, this
2: was the this was the era of um, you know where people used to dress up. You know, in the '60s was the true time of uh, of dolce vita. You know, it was the time where people, when they used to come, they used to come to the bar. They used to know what they wanted to drink. They used to make an effort and look polished and elegant. It was uh, the beginning of the evening, it was a good excuse to know how to dress up. Now you go into a hotel bar, even in hotels, you know, luxury hotel, and you will find that everybody are in shorts or flip-flop or T-shirt, you know, there is no elegance. The building is still amazing, right? Maybe the waiter still wears this impeccable jacket or the barber and the butler, but certainly the person in front of you it doesn't inspire elegance. I mean, yeah. I'm going to show you this picture of me. I don't know if you can see me. Can you oh, see yeah. me
0: as small I am? Well, yeah, I can on the left. Paper? Yep, huh? <laughs> dwarfed by the barber. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, and there is another picture which shows you actually. This was my first year, 1966. Um, And this is me in 1967, at the age of 12. Double pouring already. (laughs) Double pouring already. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Trying to... And yeah, so I started in a time where really the culture of, of bartender was different. The menus were different. They were done and the menu of the bar was much bigger. You know, t- till the 2000s, middle 2000s, you know, for me, the menu, whenever I design the menu, I design the menu around the day. Uh, the simple reason is because uh, when people used to come first thing in the morning, there is a good excuse to know how to drink and uh, maybe you want a restorative drink, you know, so people would ask maybe for Bloody Mary, which was popular, but there were other drinks as well. There would be the the Bull Shot, the Bloody Shot, uh, you know, the uh, kind of drinks that, uh, you know, were quite uh, restorative and you would be prepared. The Vampiro, the, you know, uh, sangrita, you know, this type of thing that, that, that today, the bartender, if you tell a bartender, you know how to make me a bull shot. they wouldn't even know what, what it is And there was, uh, then used to go into the aperitivo. Today, the aperitivo is start at six and finish at one o'clock in the morning. Aperitivo, in the old days, he used to start at 12 o'clock and finish at five o'clock. The aperitivo, what it is, is, it, is a wine base. A kind of a cocktail of drinks that are softer. So the sherry came to the picture, or cocktail like the Adonis came to the picture, the bamboo came to the picture, the Americano came to the picture, but not the strong drink. So sure. it was the kind of a thing that it was delicate throughout the day. So that means you could drink through the day and not necessarily get drunk, if you know what I mean. It was a soft idea. And then there was the pre-dinner, and the pre-dinner, then you used to have the the the, the, the king of the cocktail, the, the 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 martini, the negroni, the you know the Manhattan, the old fashioned, the champagne cocktail, the gin fits, the Ramos fizz, all these table drinks. You know that they used to come to the picture before dinner, right? Prepare. You know you used to dress up and you used to go down and have that beautiful martini glass in your hand, it was kind of a fashion style. And then something that totally today we don't do, the after dinner, the ultimate encounter before you go into bed. That again, once again, you know the, uh, you know great spirits like the cognac used to play this part. You know the more whiskey, you know the port, the vintage port. You know the 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 ultimate drink before you go into bed. What I meant is that your girlfriend didn't have a sweet, and she wanted a sweet drink. So the. Uh, the, the the Brandy Alexander would have come to the picture, or the Grass supper, or a uh, Digestive, the, the, one of my favorite Digestives, the Stinger, you know, this type of thing that... Uh, so the menu wasn't longer. The menu, it was designed throughout the day. So, you know, at the time of the day, you pick up the page that will reflect what sure. you need to drink into that time. But come back to Signora Felo. Uh, my, uh, my day used to start, as I say, used to slide, you know, do the bread for breakfast. And then by seven o'clock I used to go down to these small bar uh, at the Hotel Regina in Mayuri on the Amalfi Coast, where I used to switch the coffee machine on and, uh, and then clean up the bar. By eight o'clock, my first duty, it was to bring the coffee to the chef in the kitchen. And as I used to walk into the kitchen, I used to always say very jolly, good morning, Chef Alfonso. And Chef Alfonso was sitting at the far end of the kitchen, waiting for his coffee, but he, typical chef, never used to raise his eyebrow at me. He wants his coffee to start the day. Uh-huh. So that's what he used to be every morning. But one day, as I walk into the kitchen, he wasn't sitting at his usual place, but he was actually, uh, cleaning a very large fish, and as I walked in, like every morning, quite jolly, I said, "Good morning, chef Afonso." As I said that, he looked around, he looked at me, and he said, "What's so good about?" It? And with hunger, picked up that fish and threw the fish on me. I've been shot flat on the back, on my back, facing this fish. Oh, wow. So the chef came over, picked up the chef, the fi- the fish. And he walked away. And then I thought, what did I do to upset this guy? I only said, good morning. So when Signor Raffaello came, I told him the fishy tale, you know, the story about the fish. And he, in a very clear manner, to let a child understand what he did wrong, he told me in a a simple way. He said, you did not read the mood. What he meant about that. Our job is not about us to bring the sunshine to somebody. We should first understand the person who's in front of us, what kind of a person he is, read the person that he is, and then interact. That means, does he want the sunshine? Or does he want me to be more serious and say, good evening to you, sir, how are you today? And then maybe a little bit at a time, you bring the sunshine to him, and this was one of my biggest lessons ever, because that is the beginning of hospitality. Understand the person that there is in, moves in front of you, all right, and that's how you make people friend with you, because you understand them. It's not about you or how good you feel; it is about them, how good you can make them feel. You know. And this is a lesson that's something that I always talked about, you know. it's uh, It's been a journey, I mean, you know, uh, in um, I moved from, I worked in the bar from 11 to 15, for four years every summer. And then uh, always in the summer, I moved in the restaurant at the age of 15, I think 15 or 16. And by the age of 21, I always been quite eccentric, quite uh, leaders, a leader, I think. And by the age of 21, I was the youngest met the, in all the Amalfi Coast uh, by having everyone who was uh, above me, under me. And uh, that was a, quite a challenge as a young person. Big well, it was, but uh, I was pleased that I proved that uh, I'll, I deserved to be that because I carried on for three years. Then I met my wife there on the Amalfi Coast, the romance for her. For me, it was a good time. And then eventually we got, uh, I felt in love and uh, started to come to London and uh, start to work in several Italian restaurants. Uh, but I wasn't happy, I wanted to go back to the hotel. And then my wife found this job in the Evening Standard where they were advertising a job as a bartender at the Duke's hotel, you know, the Duke's bar. Mm-hmm. And which I went there for an interview and, uh, And uh, unfortunately, my reference was far too much as a Metro d, modern bartender, but I was quite insisting. I said, listen, you know, the bar has always been part of my soul, and uh, give me a go, because uh, I'm sure I could do it. And they did give me a go, but just as a part-time, no as a full-time bartender. And I started there the 3rd of December, 1982, and the 21st of December, 1982, they called me in the office and they asked, they told me very kindly, very gently, thank you for your help, but we found a partner that we are looking for. And so Christmas at home, so it wasn't very pleasant because
0: uh,
2: you can can imagine, uh, you know, my wife was expecting our first child. Uh, We just got the first mortgage, you know, so, uh, was a bit worried. But sometimes you need a luck in life. And this bartender, what he did, you know, one of the customer was quite a cold winter. Uh, a customer asked him for something warm, for cure his cold, and he decided to do kind of a hot toddy. But he did in a flambé, right? And uh, what he did, he threw the paraffin on top of the bar and caught light. And um, the bar went in almost uh, the caught fire, the bar, the top of the cant of the bar, and the customer almost got fire, and so his career went up to a smoke, and mine started with a flame. Because <laughs> they called me, they called me the 27th of December 1982, and they offered me the job, and uh, and then really I made history at the Duke's Hotel. I don't know if any of you listen knows uh, about uh, the Duke's. It's famous for the martini cocktail, the, the way the martini cocktail is made. Yeah. And uh, so I took over the, the dukes. I did two things. Uh, after six months, I became to be the, the head and the manju, with only two of us working in that bar. The bar was a very, very small bar, six tables, and uh, really, and a six-foot bar, basically, nothing else. But it was quite a charming little bar. And when I took over the bar, I started to think how to make, I'm always in the mind that uh, it doesn't matter, you know, how good you are, you can only be as good as the house can be successful, right? And uh, so I started to think about how I can make more money in that bar, and uh, obviously also to increment my wages, uh, because I had the commission on the, on the revenue and uh, the bar was making average, between four to 500 pounds a week. So I couldn't work with quantity because if I had 20 people in that, the bar was the capacity of a maximum 20 people, no more. And uh, so I had to think about how to create quality. And I've always been intrigued about the, uh, history, I've always been intrigued about marketing and that, and know how to create a voice for the, the place that you're working at. And uh, I thought one day, you know, I was uh, standing at the bar and said, how can I make more money in this small bar? And I thought, well, I can't work with quantity, so therefore I need to create quality. And how do you create quality? And I thought, well, uh, here I am at the Duke's Hotel, very historical name, London, very historical town. Um, I was facing a painting of the Duke of Wellington, in hanging in my bar, for, which you was uh, you think about the Waterloo Battle in 1815. So definitely, I had a lot of history around me, right? But one thing I was missing, it was maybe a little bit of liquid history. So I thought, how? good would be to give the opportunity to few people in the world to experience history, but in a liquid format. Now how can we part of the how can we be part of history? We can see it, we can read it, all right? We can touch it. We can feel it. For one thing for sure you can't do, or it wasn't done, is drinking history. So I went to the the management team to support me to this idea. And they told me that I was out of my mind. Uh, And they told me to to F off. But I am a very stubborn person. I truly believe, and I'll tell to every of you, listener, if you encounter this career, and if you've been given the job, right, to be a leader or to make the difference about your bar, about your place of work, then you should fulfill your expectation. That means if you have an idea, bring it forwards and don't be scared. And make sure that the idea comes to reality. So what I did, I didn't take no for an answer. I was lucky that the owner used to come to the bar. And I told the owner, I convinced the owner to back me up on this idea. And he gave me the blessing. He said, I support this idea. Go ahead, go and find whatever you want and let's see if it works. So you can imagine how popular I was with my management, right, That <laughs> I was above
0: their head. They couldn't wait for me to fail. This now was one bigger. of my questions actually, about how the conversation went when you first pitched it, <laughs> so I'm glad we got that. No, it's, uh,
2: but you know, to have an idea to bring it forwards is not as easy as it sounds, because first of all, I had to figure out what I could sell by a liquid format, obviously it couldn't be a wine because this oxidized very quickly. Wine lives in the bottle and will die in the bottle. So I had to be a distilled uh, product. So what are better, especially in the 80s, cognac was very popular. And for me, cognac is one of the nobles, noble distilled in the world, right? Uh, I think cognac was, was, it was born as a noble uh, spirit. And, uh, or a superior, superior spirits, right? And anything uh, else to catch on. You know, the rum wasn't considered, the whiskey wasn't considered, cognac already had my, uh, way how it was done. You know, double distilled to start of the aging expert. So, in, uh, you know, th- th- there was a culture, and the British always been very strong about cognac, always loved yeah. cognac, like port as well at the Lough So what I did, I started to search about this. Uh, I went to old uh, uh, auction house. I went to old uh, wine merchant like Berry Brothers and across the street, which was established in 1770. And I looked around and eventually I found my very first bottle of cognac, which was a bottle from 1914, the year of the lady, Hein. And uh, I sold that in a week and the idea spread, you know, wow. so I proved my case. And then I start to look for collectors and, uh, and eventually I start to build a collection. And then now people start to writing about the crazy Italian guy who sells liquid history. And the Duke's Bar start to create a name about selling liquid history. And the people, business people, they used to come to impress other business people and, uh, and famous people started to come to, to try something completely unique. But I'm talking about going as far back as the French Revolution, the American Constitution, um, or when George Washington, or Napoleon was marching over to Russia, uh, things like that, you know, 1811, 1812, 1805, Nelson. So they were very unique. And, uh, and because of that, I took that the bar from a revenue uh, up to 500 pounds a week, up to 10,000 pounds per table. Wow. Single hand. Yeah. So the success, the financial success was there, but the real difference that put me in the map as a bartender, it was my direct martini. Uh, when in 1985, I had the customer who his name was was called Stanton Plan, who came to the bar and it was very specific uh, how he wanted his martini. I always say, it took God six days to create a perfect world, it took me five to create a perfect martini. <laughs> and the simple reason was because this gentleman was asking, May I have? Used to come in the afternoon. He used to say, "May I have some? May I have a very dry martini, but very cold." I could certainly make a very cold by overstirring my martini, but it was wet. And he used to say, "Yes, it's cold enough, but it's not dry enough." Then I was making it dry, and he used to say, "Yes, it's dry enough, but it's not cold enough." And this was the first day, then it came to the second day, the same story. The third day was the same story. And this, you know, and I've always been a believer that, you know, it's not about you. It's we, our job, our duty is to make sure that if we fulfill the task that has been given to us by a consumer, the customer, that he wants his drink in a specific way. And that we should not have this arrogance, essence, and said, Listen, mate, this is the way I make my martini. If you don't like that, that is the dog. Go mm-hmm. and find us somewhere else. Now, if I did that, maybe I wouldn't be in front of you, Chris, and talk about that. <laughs> maybe, yeah. My story, you know, because uh, as I said, you know, uh, I figured out the way uh, on the fourth day, it was on the Friday, and it was very typical here, it's very typical here in the UK that you have a fish and chips. So the staff canteen at the hotel at the dukes were serving fish and chips. And there when I noticed that the a, a, a kitchen court was very specific how much malt vinegar wine at once on these chips. So you used to use a dash bottle and you used to use a dash on the, malt, on the, on the, on the chips of this malt vinegar wine. And you used to eat that. And I thought, well, that's clever. Now I know how to control it. Now I have to make it colder. And uh, the Dukes, you know, was a very, for 12 years, I've worked with a sink where I used to wash my own glass, an ice bucket underneath where I used to have ice. And then I used to have a, a, um, a, a station where I used to have uh, Uh, I used to hold glasses in and a little domestic fridge where there used to be a little freezer inside. You know the Uh little dog? Yes. And in there, I put a bottle of gin and two glasses. On the fifth day, Mr. Delaplane came and he asked for his usual, very dry, but very cold, dry martini. And uh, so what I did, I took the glass from the freezer, which was very cold. I took the gin from the freezer, which was very cold. I put ice in the mixing glass, ready to do it in the mixing glass. But I don't know why. I don't ask me why. I just say, well, the glass is cool. The bottle is cool. And I went directly in the glass. Mm-hmm. And then I laid the vermouth on top, all right? And put a twist on them, give it to the guy. He took one sip. He didn't say anything. He finished the drink. He didn't say anything. He asked for the same again. And because he didn't complain, I did in the same format. Yeah. And uh, he took one sip and walked away. And I said, bloody hell. For four <laughs> days, this guy, he said, yes, it's dry enough, but it's not cold enough. It's cold enough, but it's not dry enough. And now it just doesn't say anything. He walks away. But a few, few days, a few hours later, he came back down and uh, he called me a fax. And he introduced himself for who he was. Stanton Delaplaine, a very famous journalist who used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times. And there where he wrote, if you ever come to London, you must make a stop at the Duke's Bar, where Salvatore will make you the best dry martini cocktail in the planet. And every time he used to come to the Duke's in London, he used to have the, the martini. And then because of his fame, people start to come and the people started writing about, uh, and eventually by Martini, the Duke's Martini became to be known as the best Martini cocktail in the world. And, um, and he still is today, he's still famous today. Duke's is still famous for his Martini, which uh, I'm pleased because we should leave a longevity about the bar. And because of that, Uh, bartender around the world started writing about, my name, my fame became to be known as the the bartender who makes the best martini cocktail on the planet. And then uh, um, I even had, uh, uh, I even made uh, my martini to President of the United States, you know, to royalty. I could truly say that my martini has a royal crest because I serve her majesty. Uh, with, uh, you know, had martini a few times uh, so because she knew or she read about me making this incredible martini. So, um, let's say that was the, the true beginning of my career. <laughs> uh, and uh, the rest of all, you know. <laughs> and, you know. Well, I mean, then I'll it, move at the, at the lens, bro. But maybe you yeah. have a question before I carry on because I've just <laughs> thought.
0: Well, as like I said, we could be here for hours because you've had such an incredible career and, and so rich as well and it's so great to hear and I think a lot of people definitely look up to you who are coming into the bar world and uh, I, I'm really interested to touch on this liquid history and uh, I, I think it's such an incredible part of you and, and what you did for some of the bars you've worked for and uh, you're also responsible if this is correct for making the world's most expensive cocktail can we talk about <laughs> that?
2: <laughs> yeah sure I mean, you know um, as I say, with the idea of liquid history, I became to be fascinated with with the, with the cognac and the history of cognac. So with the idea, obviously you need to learn everything if you If you sell something and you sell it, you should know about what you sell and Cognac became to be a real part of my culture, so much so that I really started to study about cognac. Uh, I started, became to be an expert on vintage cognac, uh, so much so that today I'm reputed to be one of the world-leading experts in vintage in vintage cognac, or, or in cognac. I'm uh, an historian by right, and I'm also an author. I'm an author of a beautiful book called, called Cognac as a Liquid History," brilliant. Which is, you know, which is uh, quite a big book, uh, and this book is in the British Library as well as a reference book. And so I can also say that I'm knighted, I'm de cognac, one of the few in the world. So with the idea of cognac, I took it to another extreme, but as I was searching for all cognac, I was finding in all cellars, all liqueurs, all whiskey, all rum. And, And with that, what I used to do even 40 years ago, I used to love to replicate uh, the classic cocktails. Mm-hmm. I remember I used to do a Mai on those days by using old Matthews rum, 17 years old, the original one, that I wish I kept the bottle today because uh, uh, that is worth over £50,000, you know, just that specific bottle. Wow. Okay. Um, so I used to do old fashioned by using the old the bourbon uh, whiskey from the late 1800s and have an Angostura bitter from 1900. And so I, I've done that. I made the world's oldest Negroni last year by using the original leading of the birth of the Negroni to celebrate 100 years of the Negroni. I did the, the oldest daiquiri, the oldest martini. Uh, so I I really, truly, I, I am a collector, so, and, and I've been a collector. I had this appreciation to figure out to taste something of the day of the birth of the co- of that cocktails, but a few years back, what I did, I wanted to make the world oldest cocktail, something that nobody else around the world will ever be able to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So my task it was to make the world oldest cocktail, but the Guinness Book of Records did not recognize, doesn't recognize hmm. the the oldest cocktail in the world, recognize only the most expensive cocktail in the world. So right. what I did, I said, okay, I will still make the most expensive cocktail in the world because I, I can, right? Yeah. Uh, but I will make it also, the, in my mind, the world oldest. So what I did, just above me, there is the Guinness Book of Record. Can you see
0: it? I can, yeah. Framed pretty. Yeah. Early. All
2: right, just above me there. That is my, you know, my certificate for the, the most expensive cocktail in the world by the Guinness Book of Records. Wow. But what I did, I created a Salvatore Legacy by putting 750 years of history in one drink, in one cocktail, using Kumo from 1770, uh, using Cognac from 1788, which you think about the year before the French Revolution or all the American Constitution. George Washington was making his campaign to become to be the very first president of the United States. Also Australia was discovered in 1788. So imagine that history behind. Yeah. Then I use a Curaçao from 1860, right? And in those days Curaçao, you know, it was almost like the center of uh, a a cocktails, you know, because, you know, as you know, cocktail was born with spirits, sugar, bitter and water, right? But then to make it be softer and palatable, you know, liqueur was included. And Curaçao was almost like the center of many of some of the great cocktails, even in those days in 1860. So I had the Curaçao from 1860, orange Curaçao from 1860. And um, and then I use an Angostura Bitter from 1900, and all four of these ingredients, I made world oldest cocktail. So anyone who can make the most expensive cocktail, and to be honest with you, I don't care, but I don't think no one else in the world ever, at least in my lifetime, will ever be able to make the world oldest. Because if he does, I'll take my hat off him.
0: And- I think you've got that title for life, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the book because I know you've published quite a few books of your career. And uh, mm-hmm. for the audience, all of this will be in the show notes, so you can purchase them as well. What's been um, what's the number one book you recommend for the audience to read?
2: Well, this book, uh, classic cocktail. This is the, my latest reprint. When I wrote this book in 1990, well, was post, was published in 1996. And this book was important because it was the very first book of this kind to talk about the creator. Any cocktail book that I used to encounter before that, it was about the reference about the cocktail and not so much about who created And Now for us as a bartender, what is our biggest dream? It's not just to have our name above a door, right, and have our own bar but also maybe to immortalize ourselves with a great cocktail then a hundred years time, somebody was still talking about it and what I found when I was writing this book that there were very few books that I talked about the creator, right? Who create what? You know, think about the Martini sure. think about the daiquiri, think about the, we're talking about many of the cocktails that historically no one knew. So this was the very first book of this kind that I put who create what or at least I tried to obviously today you know the we have a story like Debbie Woodbridge or Jerry Brown um, mm-hmm. Jared you know Anastasia uh, you know but they're doing that but I'm not i I'm not a journalist I'm a bartender sure. so I did the best way I could in this book to write about who did what and because of that this was the very first book that really had a great success as, as a cocktail book. This is our over million copy sold of a cocktail book. Wow, All right. congratulations. All right. But what sold the most is this one Homebart and the Sky. Ah, right. okay. This book, you can put Del De Graf, Jerry Brown, you know, Debbie Boomrich, every author that you think that they have wrote cocktail books all together and they still can outsell this book. This book officially, I don't know if you can read it. Can you read it?
0: The world's best selling cocktail book.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and This is official. This would not go in a cocktail on the page unless <laughs> it's official. Right? Uh-huh. This sold more cocktail book than anyone else in the world. So many. Right? Uh, so as an author, I think I, I reach what I want. I also wrote a book about um, uh, after dinner, uh, to, to ask the bartender to consider after dinner, all right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a beautiful thing. And not just to think about that after dinner is not, you know, not start with one category of drink. Uh, I wrote about a summer cocktail book. I wrote, I wrote about, I did one book about hair of the dog, How to cure a hangover, to ask forgiveness to all my good customer (laughs) friends that over the years gave a far too much of a good time. I mean, I wrote a few 13 books, not too bad, you know. I rewrote the Bible of the United Kingdom Bartender's Guild, you know, for bartender to bartender when I was president of the United United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I did everything that I thought bartenders should dream on. I also created a cocktail that uh, made me famous around the world. Yeah. My breakfast, routine, I think I immortalized myself with the, with this drink, thanks to my wife.
0: Um, so, you know. You've ticked all the boxes. I mean, like I said, it, it's such an honor and it's incredible to hear your story. And I mean... It's a shame we have to wrap up soon. But to finish off, uh, where can we find you once things are back to normal? I mean, you're obviously at the Donovan Bar quite a few times, right?
2: Yes, these is my baby. I mean, really, yeah. the Donovan Bar at the Browns Hotel is my latest baby. It's a bar that uh, I really love. It's a beautiful bar. It has uh, um, uh, designed a bar with a top bar top that uh, is second to none. You know, it's almost a crystal on top the, to the counter. Uh, but I always have fun with um, design the back of the bar. For me, it's very, very important that bartender should get involved how to design a bar. Um, I've done a bar that uh, is uh, really bartender friendly. Remember that uh, I have a two customer. I have my internal customer and my external customer. My internal customer is my team, my staff, if they're happy to work behind the bar, um, and they're happy with their work, that is a true reflection to the, the other customer that I need to care He it is the consumer. So what I do, I take care of both elements, I'm making sure that my customer outside, they're sitting comfortable, they have an environment with the right lighting, the right music, the right soul into the bar, and the same again with my bartender who can make all the drinks in three steps. One step and reach, one step and reach, one step and reach. And in those three steps, they can make every cocktail that we have in our cocktail. Yeah. I even created my own sink to avoid to, to have a fruit fly. So you have a Calabrese sink, but I create my own bottles, you know, my liqueur, you know, I designed my own liqueur as well. Yes. Which I'm going to tell you about my great. own bag, a glassware. So I, I don't stop. I really don't stop. I really think what else, you know? But I think what is important, you know, before we wrap up, and I'm going to tell you a few, something about my tools, and my to think sure. and my cube. Mm-hmm. I think of what is important, guys, I don't think that to be a great bartender it's just about the art of a mixologist. You today, bartender, are better than what I could ever be in a way to know how to create incredible drink. But that doesn't give you the right to be called a great or what you do. Remember that what I reach today is what made me famous. Yes, I created iconic drinks, iconic drinks that are known throughout the world and I've done a lot of things, but really what put me on the map it's the other thing that I learned from a childhood. That means, on one hand, you have the art of mixology, that is a true journey of understanding how to create incredible drink. It's like cooking. Eventually, if you cook and learn and learn about spice, about flavors, how to bring the marriage of ingredients together, you become to be good as a bartender. You know, some are better than others. Sure. But what makes somebody very great is the other. It is the art of, the art of hospitality, to know how to care. Remember that a bar it is not a bar without bringing the soul of the people who work in, right? It is by far one of the greatest fears that anyone could encounter. So when you go to work, don't think about just the drink, don't think about just make a drink. And you just concentrate on that because you become to be like a chef. What we make what makes us a part is the fact that people come to us to talk to us, to learn about us, right? To have a bit of love and flair and to understand that if they want to share something with us, they can do that, right? Make them feel special. Remember that the part it is the biggest fear that there is, because we entertain, right? Yeah. And now put those two hands together, and, and now you can call yourself great, because you understand the art of mixology, the art of hospitality, what means. Especially today that we will encounter a more social distance and more difficulty to make our bar even feel more special right? So we need to care a bit more. But come back to my bathrooms, I create create a different, you know, a beautiful mixing glass which, uh, you know, holds the temperature. This mixing glass, the simple reason why it's thicker, it is because I always see when bartenders start to stir, the outside temperature gets moist and cold and wet, yeah? Now, when you see that it gets moist and wet, don't think that that doesn't happen inside. It happen inside as well, because the thinner the glass is, the, yes, it's more elegant, but you have to stir it for very quick, and not very quick, but not for a very long time, you know. The sooner it gets wet, it gets wet inside. So I create a glass, a mixing glass, which has a bigger barrier, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bit slightly a bit thicker, it doesn't break easily and it cold, hold the temperature. That means it, the, thickness, the thickness of the glass creates that barrier, right? That creates the monsters from outside to inside. And plus what I do, I put that in the fridge or in the freezer and the base is thick enough to, for you to stir it with one hand, it doesn't move. And B, because it's thick, the base, the cold of the base goes through the glass, you know?
0: Okay, then, sure. Uh,
2: I designed my own glassware. This is a beautiful glass. This is my own martini glass, called Calabrese martini glass. Great. My shaker, a perfect shaker, which open easily. Okay, okay. The right amount that for you to stare, to shake. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, this base, what he does, when he sits uh, inside the the shaker, remember what you touch from outside, your hand is contaminated in one way or the other. Mm. So the sooner you touch the shaker, and you open, you contaminate the bottom bit. So many bartenders, what they do, they put the top part inside the base, right? Mm -hmm. So what they do, and sits on top of the ice so they contaminated, right? I usually what I do, I always shake my, my shaker before for ten for two few seconds, just make a cold, take the top part, and then I start to make the drink. But if you decide to put that there, that sits perfectly, that this part, this part, the top part, doesn't hit the ice. So they don't contaminate, don't contaminate your drink. Then I just create and design another shaker, which I think is going to come out soon. Oh, that's this interesting. This is called the yeah. Calabrese Bar Bullet. Okay. Right? This is called the Calabresa Bar Bullet because this is the answer of every bartender around the world who does the dry shake. Imagine you do the dry shake. Now, a dry, uh, when you start to shake without ice, the shaker never seals properly. So what you do, you, you splash yourself, right? Or you splash the customer, or the shaker gets all dirty. So you take it a long time just to whip whatever the inside is. Then yeah. you put the ice and then you shake again, yeah? So, it's a, so I get very frustrated and very fed up with that because I don't like, I don't like the bartender to get dirty, I don't like the dry shake. So what I did, I created an answer to that. If you look, it's got a spring.
0: Okay, yeah, brilliant. It's built in. Now,
2: you put two ice cubes inside, so it makes the drink cold. All you need are two ice cubes. You close it. And now,
0: can you get it? Yes.
2: Yeah, I can. Okay. The spring inside is whipping the ice, right? And the ingredient, and when 10-15 seconds of that just shake comes out, use the spring to hold the ice, right? Or put the spoon inside if you want to make sure that the, the ice doesn't hold the spring, and just pour it, right? And uh, and dissolve the, you know, this. This is what I'm like. Yeah. Always <laughs> something annoys me. I'll go and find a way how to resolve it. And Great. then las- lastly, my
0: liqueur. Yes, very excited ah, to about yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Can you see it? Yeah.
2: Now this liqueur, um, when the Kuiper asked me to create my own liqueur, I said, okay, I already created my own liqueur with my L'Equilid di limone, you know, lemon liqueur, which I think is one of the best in the world. And, uh, uh, but everybody can confuse that with limoncello. But for me, it's, uh, it's almost like um, a grand manier with uh, the taste of orange flavor, but it's with lemon flavor. <clears throat> so when I decided to take that challenge with the Kuiper to create my own liqueur, I started to think about how to be unique. <clears throat> now to be unique. You can't make a chocolate liqueur and say a mine is better than everybody else, because it's metal palate and taste. The same again with nutty or you you know, or minty, whatever you, liqueur you want to do. Everything has been created before. So I hit the wall. I try to figure out how I'm gonna be different, how I'm gonna make this liqueur different, unique from anybody else. So in the in the part of my room, apart you see my shaker right here. I don't know if you could see it in my collection of It's shakers. a great cabinet, yeah. <laughs> well, this is just some of them. I have over 500 shakers.
0: Wow. Okay.
2: Um, it gets me crazy. So I decided to choose my, my preferred shaker and I put them in a the cabinet, which is about a couple of hundred of them. Uh, but can you imagine every other month I have to polish these bloody shakers? <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> um, because my wife wouldn't touch them. Uh, and yeah, so I, on the other side, I have uh, a cabinet with um, a shelf display with uh, uh, my my collection of books. So I had to look for inspiration. So I look for an inspiration, and I start to pick up an old book from seventeen hundred, eighteen hundred. Look if there was something unusual. And then in one recipe, a co- then look, at old cocktail recipe, because maybe there was uh, an ingredient in a cocktail recipe that I didn't encounter before, and look what happened. I find a punch um, from the 1700s, which I had the, the rum, the, the juice, the things that, uh, not so much the juice, it was the citrus, um, the, the bitter, um, things that I want, and, um, that I was aware from, but then there was one word that I didn't know what it was, ambergris. And mm. I thought, what's ambergris? And uh, so I went and figured out what was ambergris. Ambergris is something that is, is used in perfumery. The best perfume in the world uses ambergris, or makes a difference between a perfume to another. Ambergris, what it does is a sense, you know, the aroma, or whatever the the perfumery would put in, that means it starts gives a longer, uh, ge- a longer life about the perfume, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I see that the, the ambergris was used also in so it was not unusual. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the old days, obviously, there were more wells in the sea than there is today. Um, So what I wanted to do, I said, wow, what do we miss in the liqueur, right? If we open up a, a, a cognac, if I taste cognac, what do you do? First thing you do, you smell it. The aroma, perception opens your mind of things that you might not encounter in the palate. The same again with wine, the same again with whiskey, the same again with rum. But when it comes to liqueur, you don't do that. The only taste and flavors it is in the palate. So if it's chocolate, it's chocolate. If you try to smell it, it's very, very small linger essence, but not perception is very strong. So my idea was to create the most aromatic liqueur in the world, which I did, right? And by using this ingredient, which was amber grease, which is not used in any other liqueur around the world. Amber grease is a very, very, Expensive. Imagine if you find one ambergris, right? Uh, a kilo of ambergris, it costs about ten thousand pounds. Wow. Okay. All right? right. So it's like a finding a golden nugget. Yeah. In the in the river or whatever. All right. And for me, it's the old ingredient that I use in here. They're all natural. So you can imagine when I told uh, the Kiefer that this is the way I want Malicure, they turn around and said, "What? We use a synthetic ambergris or what?" I said, "No, everything that it goes in Malicure, the flowers, everything, lemon essence, it has to be natural." Mm-hmm. So it's got three natural uh, citrus elements, which one is lemon from the Amalfi Coast, which is citrus fresh. Another one is a Bergamotto, which is citrus floral, which I want. Mm-hmm. Another lemon is a citron, which is the oldest lemon in the world, right? The grand, 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 grand part of every lemon. Okay. okay. Which is citrus bitter, which helps the sugar level uh, going down, you know, balance the sugar. And then there is floral note from flowers, rose, right? And then it's called the freshness of peppermint. And all this is put together with an ambergris. Ambergris is the center stage. So when you taste this liqueur, it is the perfect centerpiece of any cocktail because it works well either with dark spirit that with white spirit. It is absolutely fantastic. Then the bottle has been designed by my daughter because ah, she's okay. asking me to say, Dad, where did you get inspiration from? And I said, from a book. So this is the spinal of the spiral of, the spine of a spine of a book yeah all right so created by the Maestro Salvatore Calabrese published by the Kuiper all right so guys go and try to find this liqueur because you will not be disappointed because the Maestro told you
0: great and I mean it's such a good time where we're all home bartenders and obviously shopping for new equipment so i mean with the liqueur and equipment where can we find it online where can we order it
2: well you can go on my website uh-huh. you know uh, www.salvatore-calabrese.co.uk uh, and um, you can find me on the on, on you know you can store it on my website and you will find all my product go to product list, you go to cocktail list, it tells you where you can go and get it from. Great. Um, I'm very pleased with my latest shaker, the Bar Bullet. I think it's a very unique shaker. It's a shaker that the people could make put, do their own design, their own logo, you know, on top of the bar. It's really nice shaker. Yeah. Um, And then another thing is what, uh, uh, I'm going to leave you with a story Right. Great a story that is very, very dear to me. Uh, I've been responsible for many marriage and maybe a few divorce, but whatever happened in divorce, it's only because I gave them a good time, and uh, you know. But I'm more warm, I'm more, more pleased about the marriage that I uh, put it together and introduced the the right person, to the right person, but. In my career, I've been lucky enough that I served and met many great people. I had the pleasure to meet Fidel Castro, uh, Nelson Mandela, served a few presidents in the United States. I, I served all the royal pe- family that at one time I used to be known uh, as the royal bartender. Um, I met any iconic person that you want to think about, from people from Mick Jagger, Paul McCarthy, Bon Jovi, Santana, Moody Blues, I mean, you name it. Selva Martini to people like Sean Connery, Pete Brosnan uh, to, you know, again, to royal people. For uh, I, I enjoy, it. I have a people like, uh, Robert De Niro walked into my bar and as he walked in, I said, good evening, Mr. De Niro. And he asked who was Salvatore and I said, I am Mr. De Niro. And he turns around and he said, what makes you so well known? Every one of my friends tells me about you. And I said, well, Mr. De Niro, take your cup off, your basketball cup off, walk in and you will find out. And he did. (laughs) And and I'm still friendly with him, very friendly with him. And so I, I've been blessed in a way that uh, I could truly write another book about people and famous people. But I do not do that because what happened in the bar stays in the bar, right? Um But one story I'd like to share with you because I think that is important, it is that uh, one day, well, I had uh, one of my regular customer and friend, a good friend, is Stevie Wonder. And, uh, when I had Stephen Wonder come to my bar, one day I created a, a drink for him called Champagne Wonder, As he loved the champagne. And he truly enjoyed the Champagne Wonder so much so that he started to have a few of them. And as he was enjoying himself, I had my pianist, Brian, play the piano. And I could see his teeth uh, moving his head, you know, not listen to the music. So I didn't do no more, I went to Steve and I said, Steve, would you like to play? And he said, yes, I would love to, right? So I took him to the piano and there where he played for over half an hour, not one or two songs, but actually for over half an hour, my bar. Now imagine how magical it was for my guests, for the rest of the people who stand in the bar, sit at the bar, right? listen, Stevie wonder, life, and all with the cost of a cocktail, right? I mean, you could not write this, you cannot write that script. But what was more magical for me, it is that he, at the end of the night, when he stood up to leave, and I went to say and shake his hand, um, you know, and I said goodnight to him, he started to applaud. And I turned around and I said, Steve, what's that for? And he stated, he said, from one artist to another. And that's what we can be. We could be as a par, as the biggest star in the world. If we love what we do, and we do it with passion. Because remember, whoever comes to your house, to your place, It doesn't matter how famous he is or not famous, it's a human being. It is up to you to make sure that he feels special with you.
0: Wow. I mean, such an inspiration, really. And I think the audience are going to love this. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your experience with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's okay. We can have a breakfast
2: martini. I mean, it's morning for me. You know, it's a bit, a bit too early for me. But yeah. it's evening <laughs> for you. Listen, and- Chris, I hope, I hope uh, everything was fine and uh, yeah. you enjoyed it. And, it's been uh, great. Yeah. Send me the
0: link. Send me the... I will do. Thank so- you. It's been such a pleasure and uh, we'll definitely be in touch soon. And that was it. Wow, lovely. What an incredible story. Uh, he is such a, an inspiring individual and he really has, I think, given a lot to the industry and is very happy and proud to do so. So thank you, Salvatore, for your outstanding achievements. Um, guys, let me know how you're doing. If you like the show, give me a comment, like, subscribe. Uh, next week, we'll have another fantastic guest. And maybe you should leave me a comment. If you leave me a comment uh, to let me know who you want on the show possibly i'll get in touch and i'll have you join me so you can ask your own question all right guys have a wonderful week bye